talk about this plan of yours. I think it's good, except it sucks. So let me do the plan, and that way it might be really good. Wow. Spider-Man, Spider-Man Does whatever a spider can Spins a web any size Catches thieves just like flies Look out! Here comes a Spider-Man Is he strong? Listen, but He's got radioactive blood Hello, and welcome to It's Good Except It Sucks A movie by movie and television series by television series hurtled through the Marvel Cinematic Universe this time, we're stepping outside the Marvel Cinematic Universe and into the multiverse for a look at Spider-Man 2, part of Sony's first series of Spider-Man films, originally released in June 2004. Technically, this place sits somewhere between Bruce Banner being enlisted into the Super Soldier program and Iron Fist teaching the monks at Kunlun how to play tic-tac-toe, and, you guessed it, there's absolutely no crossover with either of those. Although we will be coming back to the relevance of this film for the Marvel Cinematic Universe later. I'm Tim Worthington, and we're finding out what I thought of Spider-Man 2 shortly. Meanwhile, joining me to give her thoughts on Spider-Man 2 is writer Sophie Davis. Sophie, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at It's Sophie Davis. I write about TV for a few different websites, and I host two TV-related podcasts. Smash Prawns in a Milky Basket is about the work of Julia Davis, and It's Nest Pod Thing is looking back at every episode of S Club 7's TV show. Well, I've seen some of the S Club 7 TV show. It's slightly weird that what happens in this but Sophie what happens in Spider-Man 2? So the first film has happened Peter Parker has gained his powers and he's defeated the Green Goblin i.e. his mate's dad. So in Spider-Man 2 it's about two years later and Peter is basically struggling to have it all. He's sort of succeeding in his life as Spider-Man but as Peter Parker he's flailing. So he's now in college but he keeps missing his classes. He's got a reputation for being brilliant but lazy. He keeps losing jobs because he's unreliable. He's living in a tiny little apartment where he can't afford to pay the rent. His aunt is struggling for money and he can't really help her. And he's also sort of drifted away from his friends because he never has time to see them. And they have no idea that he's living this double life. So he's having a mare, basically. And the villain who emerges is Doc Ock who starts out as a kind of nice, cuddly scientist who Peter really admires. But after a machine that he's built malfunctions and his wife dies as a result of that, he becomes this villain with really quite frightening mechanical arms. And he's determined to basically finish what he started and build his machine, even if it ends up being destructive. And then in amongst all of that, Peter also starts to lose his powers to a certain extent. And at one point in the film, he decides to stop being Spider-Man and just live life as Peter Parker for a while. But obviously, in the end, he has to go back to being Spider-Man, really, because it's his duty and he needs to save Mary Jane, defeat Doc Ock and kind of be the hero that the city needs. Okay, well, so Sophie, how much did you know about Spider-Man before you saw this film? Well, I'd seen the first film, so I knew the backstory from that. I've never really been a comic book reader, so I didn't really know much about Spider-Man in general before the Sam Raimi films came out. I think when this second one was released, I would have been about 12 years old. I think I might have seen it in the cinema. I'm not 100% sure, but I definitely own the first two films 
films on DVD when I was a teenager and I always really enjoyed those two. But yeah, it's weird thinking back to a time before Spider-Man was constantly appearing in films. <laughs> like when I was a child, I didn't really know much about Spider-Man at all. And then over the last 20 years, he's been a sort of consistent presence in cinema, really, in all these different iterations. Well, that's the really weird thing, thinking back, doing all these episodes again, is I would never have envisaged the world where you could just mention Groot or Thanos in casual conversation and people yeah. wouldn't look at you like you're making up words. You know, they probably would have thought there were the those words and shooting stars of Vic and Pop. <laughs> I think this is tremendous. This is even better than the first one, you know, which is a good film. But in this, it feels like everyone involved is having fun. They're really enjoying themselves and it just gives it that extra push towards being brilliant and Marvel themselves were really impressed by it, which again, we'll come back to. But I think the really important thing is, I had no idea until I looked into this, but apparently the early script submissions were more outlandish and they had things like they made Dr. Octopus younger and yeah. he was a love rival with Mary Jane and so on. And Sam Raimi just basically pulled it back and pulled out some comics from the 60s and said, this is what people want. You know, they want this simplicity. They want a big story told in really big terms. And I think that's really what elevates this above the other Sony Spider-Man films. And I include Venom and presumably Morbius in that as well. Yeah, because there's a lot going on throughout the whole thing, but there are kind of like running themes. Like I think with a lot of the characters, grief is a big theme. Obviously, Peter and Aunt May are still grieving for Uncle Ben and Peter still feels responsible for it to some extent. Then there's Harry, who's grieving for his dad and he's getting very sort of bitter and it's twisting him up inside and he wants vengeance against Spider-Man, who he thinks murdered him. And then obviously with Doc Ock, he loses his wife in this horrific way and then feels an obligation to carry on with what he started because otherwise what was her death for you know if he doesn't finish his machine she died for nothing basically so even though there's all these different stories going on there are these sort of running threads and sort of father figures again you know peter gets to know octavius a little bit before he has this transformation and they get on well they're both scientists and he does seem to be looking up to him a little bit so maybe that's another father figure element of the story and alfred molina kind of fits both sides of the character really well i think because even though he's a really big guy he's a bit sort of cuddly to begin with like he's not a sort of muscular big guy like a bodybuilder in a lab coat like it's more like he fits both sides of it really well i think i think he's talked about how he thought he was quite an odd casting choice because he wasn't really known for doing these sort of big blockbuster films but i think he is just brilliant and i'm really excited about he's coming back i guess but we don't know quite how yet yeah he's absolutely perfect i mean i was surprised as well when they announced the casting because comics wise otto octavius could be a bit of like a 2d mad scientist a lot of the time quite often there's not much of a character to fill there and also he had that kind of ridiculous feral beetles hairstyle and those <laughs> i know that they kind of do a variation on the goggles in this but he had those really really weird goggles in the comics that they've never really changed but after Bellina gives him something more than that you can almost empathize with him you can understand how he's been not how he's been driven 
driven to have these four ridiculous bionic <laughs> arms, but you know how he's been driven to pursue his scientific vision at any other cost. Because there's bits where he will not be dissuaded from running experiments that are actively harming other people. It's as though he just filters them out. It's not that he doesn't care that they're suffering. It's just he must get to the end point of that experiment. And Melina nails that, really. Yeah, because the technology he's developing is for renewable energy, isn't it? So it's a good thing. You know, he's not deliberately creating something destructive. It's just a sort of accident that he, as you said, he's a bit sort of oblivious, really. Like during the first, the malfunction where people are clearly in danger, Spider-Man is trying to pull out the plug and he's like, no, it'll be fine. <laughs> <laughs> it'll it'll stabilise like he's it's his life's work and he's just determined that it's going to work but I do quite like how at the very end during the final confrontation he does sort of he gets sort of electrocuted doesn't he and he does return to being Octavius a little bit and Peter removes his mask they have a bit of a chat about why the machine needs to be destroyed and so it is a bit like he has a bit of redemption at the end because he volunteers to you know drown it and therefore drown himself so I quite like how you know he started off as a good guy and it wasn't just like oh he became bad and then he was killed you know he did get a little bit of redemption towards the end by stopping the machine himself and the rest of the cast are fantastic as well I mean J.K. Simmons obviously was in the first one but he's <laughs> so good as J. Joe and the Jameson is particularly the bit where he gets his own Spider-Man suit while complaining about how Spider-Man's a menace of the city he's cosplaying at him in his office and then Peter steals yeah. the suit later as well Kirsten Dunst really comes into her own as Mary Jane in this one she really gives the character some depth to the extent that I would call her the second lead character in it above even Dr Octopus she gets her own not quite a story arc but she has a reason to be there which was quite often the problem with pre-MCU films with Marvel characters was the love interests were literally just that they didn't get Mm -hmm. to do much else my one problem with it is I find Aunt May now it's better than in the Spider-Man TV series from the 70s where there was a different Aunt May each episode practically but I find the character in here in this second film in particular a bit inconsistent and that takes me out of it because she seems to change who she is depending on what situation she's in that's a flaw in the script really yeah it's tough because you know in the little speech she gives to Peter towards the end do you think that she knows he's Spider-Man because there doesn't really seem to be a definitive answer on this but if she doesn't know she's being very sort of she's hinting at it very heavily but I'm not quite sure whether she actually knows or not I do quite like the scene though where he decides to actually tell her what happened with Uncle Mm. Ben and why he sort of feels responsible for it because it's quite shocking how because she's such a sort of supportive figure you're kind of expecting her to say oh don't worry it's all right you know I'm sure you weren't actually to blame but because she actually reacts in a different way she sort of pulls her hand away and leaves the room I think that is quite shocking because I think maybe Peter is also expecting her to sort of I don't know give him some sort of closure or forgiveness and the fact that she doesn't is quite surprising in that moment I think yeah I think that's what they were really driving towards here and that's why I mean the big impact of this film was that it was this and the script that Joe Cornish and Edgar Wright did for Ant-Man which was with a different studio at that point that made Marvel think the other films like Blade and the X-Men films let's not bring Ang Lee's Hulk into this but the problem with them was they're just films with Marvel characters in. They weren't Marvel films and Marvel had not approved of any of them but this one in particular, they saw it and they thought, that's doing our comic on the screen. You can do Mm -hmm. it and do, you know, a big family friendly blockbuster. You don't 
don't have to change it in all kinds of ways. You don't have to give characters different backstories just for the sake of it and so on. And then with the Ant-Man script, you know, there were references in it to S.H.I.E.L.D. and the Avengers and so on. And they thought, okay, so you can do the pop culture references thing. And also, we've got the rights to all those characters. So we could actually do world building. But without those two things, but this film in particular, there wouldn't be an MCU. And I think that's quite an important legacy, really. Yeah, I was watching some of the special features on the Blu-ray and there's a whole thing where Stan Lee is talking about Peter Parker in the comics and how at the time when he was putting those together, he says his publisher was quite like, why are you writing about this superhero's personal life? Nobody's going to care about Peter Parker not getting a girlfriend or not getting a job. You know, they just want to see the hero fighting the villain. They just want action. And so he said at the time it felt kind of like he was going against the grain, but it works. It's what makes Spider-Man a bit more relatable as a superhero because he's a young adult and he's struggling you know I think the the opening of the film sets up really well that his life is a mess you know he's got a pizza delivery job that he gets fired from because he can't he's just really unreliable he's drifted apart from his friends he seems to have forgotten his own birthday doesn't he he's like he goes to Aunt May's house and there's a really kind of sad surprise party that's just Aunt May Harry and MJ and he's like what's the occasion and he also doesn't notice that the landlord's daughter fancies him as well yeah he's, he's completely oblivious world. to that yeah i think toby Maguire is at his best in this one because in the first one it's a bit unbelievable that he's a teenager but that is the case with all of the teenage characters to be fair like in the school there's a bully character who looks about 35 <laughs> and so he doesn't necessarily stand out amongst the others but i think in this one he looks like a young adult so it's more believable and then yeah in the third one there are some weird choices in that performance so i think in terms of peter parker i think he's at his most sort of likable and relatable in the second one and you know we can all relate to the sort of the job problems the love life problems and that obviously starts to seep into his life as spider-man as well because he starts to kind of lose his powers a little bit yes and that does feed into the bit that i think is really relatable in this film i think anyone watching it will have had something like this which is basically where you know when his powers are waning there's that bit where he thinks you know what i can give up being spider-man and that'll fix everything I could wake yeah. up tomorrow and start afresh, one foot in front of the other, and it does not work. It does not happen. I think we've all had moments like that where we've thought, if only I stopped doing X, Y will happen, and it doesn't work. Yeah, the little montage with raindrops keep falling on my head where he's just sort of jauntily walking along. In the special features, they said that they put that song in as just like a little bit of a temporary joke, like a temporary bit of music for that montage, and then they ended up just keeping it because they thought it was funny, because it is just so kind of cheesy like all my problems are solved now well speaking of music we do get that bizarre michael buble version of the song from the 60s spider-man cartoon which i'm not quite sure what's going on there but there's also a recurring joke about a hipster busker improvising trying to write that song on the spot watching him fighting crime i love that because that is how you do that kind of a reference again that's something they've really got right throughout the mcu things like working the old captain america cinema serials into it by having him starring in one to bring that song into it as somebody just like making up terrible rhymes watching him that is how you should do it really a spider-man a spider-man does whatever a spider can a spins a wave any size catch a or toss a rock 
Yeah, I did enjoy, I didn't actually look up what this song was, but as soon as the end credits start, it's a really kind of 2000s rocky, like alternative rock song. And because the film, I think, hasn't particularly aged, like it's quite timeless, I think. But then when that started at the end, I was like, oh, it's the early 2000s. Because I think the special effects are really good. And I think I read somewhere that they were kind of shopping around the idea of doing a Spider-Man film for a while. But I'm quite glad they kind of waited until now now because I'm not sure how they would have done the whole you know swinging through the city stuff because obviously it's a CG character and it has held up pretty well because I guess part of it is because he's got a mask on so there isn't that uncanny valley sort of human face on a CG character. I think the effects have held up pretty well and the whole thing with the Doc Ock arms is amazing I was watching all of the special features about that and how a lot of the time it's puppets and there's like four people operating each arm sometimes it's cg and again i don't think that has dated particularly badly considering it's about 20 years old yeah i think effects like that reach the point where they just reach that believability and you know like you say they don't really age now i mean you look at the first couple of episodes of the revived dr who from 2005 they don't look clunky in the sort mm-hmm. of way that you know when dr who was on previously episodes from a couple of years before that would look clunky because the effects they used and yeah i think the fact that it did take so long to get to that point where they could do a realistic CGI Spider-Man. You know, when you think about the live-action Spider-Man before that was a 70s TV series where they actually had people swinging between buildings because there's no other way of doing it. And it got cancelled on cost ground. The fact that there's been nothing in between to, you know, hold up an embarrassing rendition of it, I think is quite important, really. Yeah, the CG version of Doc Ock is a little bit more noticeable because it's a guy with a human face rather than a mask but it's still pretty good you don't look at it and go oh god that's aged really badly and I think the scene where he's on the operating table is still I was surprised by how scary it was when I rewatched it I was like oh god I watched this when I was 12 I must have found that terrifying you can definitely see the sort of horror influences there I guess from Sam Raimi like there's a guy being shoved into a light and getting electrocuted there's a woman being sort of dragged away screaming and she's like scratching her nails on the floor it's quite brutal it's more brutal than i'd remembered yeah that's also got a cameo from john landis as one of the doctors and what struck me watching this is there were quite a few cameos in it from people who are now very well known who i was surprised to go back and look and find that at the time they were cameos because the people working on the film liked something smaller scale that they did for example you've got joel McHale, who obviously is now yeah. very well known from community and this was before community they got him in because he was in the soup that sort of thing that was a bit like Harry Hill's TV burp sort of in America. There's also Daniel Day Kim and you know when I saw him Mm -hmm. I thought oh it's Jim from Lost this predates Lost this is when he was in Angel so they obviously got him in because they liked him in Angel. That's quite odd to see really to think that it was a time when these people it wasn't really a cameo for the mass audience it was a cameo for people who like the same things as the filmmakers. Yeah it took me a while to recognise Elizabeth Banks as well because she's got a sort of dark bob wig on and I didn't realise that Sam Raimi's brother is one of the guys in the newspaper office as well although you can't miss Bruce Campbell as quote snooty usher as he's credited yeah (laughs) he gets about five minutes and he's absolutely brilliant yeah to be fair I think that character's in the right Peter's very annoyed but (laughs) also I noticed as well she gets the five minute call to go on stage and Peter's still on his scooter so he was cutting a bit fine to begin with anyway like he wasn't exactly getting there really early 
released. So the fact that he got caught up in a car chase is his own fault, really. I've got no sympathy for him. What's interesting is we did get the third one, which I don't think is as good as the first two. And there was then a big fallout and they cancelled the fourth, which would have had Kurt Connors, who does appear in this, becoming the lizard. And then he later did in the Andrew Garfield ones, which I say we don't like to talk about them. We're going to have to in this eventually. But I think a real mark of quality for this film is there is a longer cut called Spider-Man 2.1, which is that good that, you know, most longer cuts of things I get pretty bored of pretty quickly. That's as good, if not better. And it was so good, it actually got a theatrical release in its own right. Oh, right. There's nothing in it that drags it down, that makes it feel... I mean, it is longer, but it feels as good a film as the original cut does. Yeah, that's interesting. I've never actually seen the Andrew Garfield ones because I think when they came out, I was in university, so I wasn't going to the cinema a lot. And I just... I never really heard anyone say anything positive about them. Like, no convinced me that I should go and see them. They were just kind of there and whenever I saw a trailer <laughs> it was kind of like oh it looks like a it looks like it doesn't have much character compared to these original ones. When I was reading about Spider-Man 2 the other day occasionally something would come up about the amazing Spider-Man 2 so it was kind of infiltrating my Google results and there were a few times where I clicked on something and it was like the amazing Spider-Man 2 is the worst and I was like okay I'm reading about the wrong film here I need to switch to the <laughs> correct one. To be fair to me, I think they were pulling in different directions with those and it all turned into a bit of a mess, but I think the ultimate statement on those two films is that all of the Tobey Maguire Spider-Man films are on different Blu-rays, you have to buy them separately. The Andrew Garfield ones are bundled together, you can't mm. get them individually. Yeah, I re-watched all three of the Sam Raimi ones last week, just to kind of remind myself you know, what's in each one, and three is just, it's quite bizarre. It's interesting as a film you know it's not boring but it's quite odd it's it's a bit messy isn't it it is but you wonder what they're going to do with it going forward because as you alluded to Alfred Molina is coming back in Spider-Man No Way Home as this iteration of Dr. Octopus is being confirmed as is Jamie Foxx's Electro from the Andrew Garfield films oh, rumours are still that. going round that those two themselves are coming back as Spider-Man there, there mm. will be some kind of multiverse deal going on there's all kinds of other rumours about other past Marvel iterations that are going to at least be referenced in some way. What it looks to me is like, you know there's that dispute about Sony wanted to withdraw Spider-Man for the MCU, which mm-hmm. must have all been about money, because that's in nobody's best interest to do that. But going forward, you know, if they're bringing their characters in, in whatever capacity, and then, you know, they're doing their own universe, with obviously just being into the Spider-Verse, there's the Venom films, there's Morbius coming out, there's rumours of a Spider-Woman film, presumably the Jessica Drew Spider-Woman. They've also said the new deal will allow Tom Holland to appear in the Sony films as well. So it's obviously there's some collaboration going forward, which is actually quite exciting really. Yeah, it does sound quite sort of into the Spider-Verse. I didn't know about Jamie Foxx coming back with his character. Does this mean I'll actually have to watch the Amazing Spider-Man films to understand I don't know because I'm hoping on. they'll do him a bit better than they did in those. Yeah, I was going to say, is that is that their aim? Are they hoping people will go and buy those Blu-rays to actually actually watch them. They've confirmed he won't be blue, so there is that. <laughs> that is quite an interesting thing about, you know, obviously Marvel now reown the rights to most of their characters again. There's a couple they don't like. I don't know what the deal is with the Submariner and Rom the Space Knight, a couple of people like that, but if Sony own these characters and they can work with Marvel on making them in actually good films, that can only be to everyone's benefit, really. Yeah, definitely. And 
looking forward to J.K. Simmons coming back as well, because we've already yes! seen him a little yeah. bit in the end credits sequence. That was very exciting. Yeah, that's such a good character. I love it. At the wedding at the end of this one, where he's just his son has just been jilted at the altar, <laughs> and he's like, call the caterer, tell him not to open the caviar. <laughs> such a ridiculous character. And the other bit we get right at the end is Norman Osborn reappearing to Harry, and it's unclear, as it always is in the comics, whether it's a hallucination or whether Norman is actually just pretending to be dead because you never really know with Norman Osborn. There's that setting up, you know, the future of the films. And there's also Mary Jane, who obviously by now knows that Peter is Spider-Man, hears police sirens and encourages him to go as Spider-Man to help. Yeah, I, I'm really not, watching it as an adult, I'm really not a fan of her leaving her fiancé at the altar <laughs> because I, I think if they'd set up him being, like, not a very nice guy or something, it would have been satisfying but they don't do that no we don't really see that much of him we know he's an astronaut and he's in a few scenes but he comes across as just being quite sort of nice so i'm not a fan of her just sort of leaving him and she's running away in a wedding dress smiling no shame at all and i just feel quite bad for him and yeah she sort of yeah she knows that he's spider-man by the end it's just a shame in the third one a lot of things seem to kind of they seem to go back on a lot of things like they changed the backstory about Uncle Ben about who actually killed him Mary Jane and Peter now that they're actually together are like not having a good time in a relationship at all it's just very odd and Harry seems to be the villain of the third film and then he gets a concussion and forgets all about it it's just a shame sometimes when you're rewatching the second one when you know about certain things in the third one and you're like oh that's a shame well i've literally just noticed now that they are going to bring back john jameson J. Jonah jameson's son as man wolf in the future sony film so maybe mary jane will realize that it wasn't such a bad move to leave him at the altar after all uh that's that makes me feel a bit better because i was thinking oh i hope he's okay i hope he recovers from this he, did, he didn't do anything wrong and he just got ditched at the Alter. Okay, well, there's only one thing left for me to ask now. Sophie, Reed Diamond, who plays the actor playing Algernon opposite Mary Jane in The Importance of Being Earnest in this movie, was also the recurring villain Daniel Whitehall in Agents of S.H.I.E.L.D. Now, I could have gone for Peter McRobbie, who was representative in this and also Father Lantern in the Netflix Marvel series, but this seemed a bit more interesting. Who's better out of Algernon and Daniel Whitehall? Oh, God, I don't know. <laughs> I have no idea. I'm not sure. Well, put it this way, one's a uh, kind of ageless evil head of Hydra and one's a lovey I wasn't a fan of the British accents they were doing in this uh, <laughs> production of the importance of being earnest so I think I'll go for the villainous character he does do a good German accent that's all I'll say Sophie <laughs> thank you and Excelsior thanks for inviting me if you've enjoyed this don't forget you can find more editions of It's Good Except It Sucks and plenty more besides, including details of my book Can't Help Thinking About Me at timworthington.org.